Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, and we covered the first half of the chapter last Sunday, uh, and today we're going to be starting with verse 18, but we saw last time that Jesus ministered to really the least esteemed in society, and that's my Lord. You know, he finds the ones that are the downtrodden, he finds the one that everyone else has ignored, and he goes to them. I love that about Jesus, and today we're going to see him demonstrate his authority over all creation. And this is going to be embodied in the weather, in meteorology, and uh, certainly the demonic world. Now, what I did do also is I'm going to give you the main body of what Matthew is saying, and I'm going to add Mark's account and Luke's account to give you more of a synoptic view. So I want to give you as much information as possible about these events that we're going to read about today. So starting with verse 18, it says, Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him... He gave a command to depart to the other side. Some of the things we're going to read today can only almost seem insulting. Uh, But of course, if you know the Lord, you know he does everything for a reason. He's got the mind of God. He speaks the oracles of God. He's the word of God. So we'll try to make some sense of it. But it's interesting because today, especially in America, it's almost become a status symbol. If you could reach out to the masses. If you could fill football stadiums with crusades or the seeker-friendly movement where you can have churches used as a verb now. We have to church people. Bring them in. Have them flood Sunday service. And you can be believing in the Lord. And next to you can be somebody who believes in Zeus. And over here, they could believe in the elephant God. And it doesn't matter because nobody gets offended on Sunday. So this is this concept that we have of bringing in the masses. However, Jesus focused on discipleship. Now, we know he had more than 12 disciples. At one point, he sent out two by two. He had 70, and uh, he could have had upwards of 100 or more. Uh, So we see that Jesus really focuses more on discipleship. And the studies show, the Christian Christian studies with some of these uh, crusades and after effects, that they find that the percentage of those actually walking is in the single digits. So discipleship, you can't go wrong by following Jesus' example. Verse 19 Then a certain scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Again, seems to be insulting at first. Well, let's, let's look at this. Number one, the scribe. This guy was an expert in Mosaic law. He could, you could ask him Leviticus 19 and he could rattle it off to you. Uh, they, they copied the law. They memorized the law. So these guys really knew God's word. They knew the law. However, Jesus says, basically, he looks at this guy. He may be, number one, overeager, overconfident, maybe hasn't fully counted the costs. And that's what Jesus is saying to him. Guy may be green. He may think he's ready, but he doesn't have enough wisdom yet. And it's, this is a rough thing because even in John chapter 6, it said Jesus had many disciples and when he started really hitting them with deeper, harder teachings, a lot of them walked away and didn't follow him anymore. These were his followers, right? So it, it is said when you put time in discipleship and the first sign of difficulty, a person flees. So this is very important that Jesus tells them right up front what to expect so this doesn't happen. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That doesn't sound particularly exciting. You know, it doesn't sound particularly glamorous, does it? But the bottom line is, true ministry, 
true discipleship, even leadership, involves sacrifice, disappointment, and certainly opposition from the world, and we need to be prepared. The second example is the procrastinator, the excuse maker. This person's not reliable. They give lip service to God, but they're always putting him last in his priorities. Let me first bury my father. That's a contradiction in terms. The Lord tells us to do something, and we tell him we know better. Let me first bury my father. Now, before you get upset, it doesn't mean that his dad just passed away, and he was starting to decompose in the hot sun, and Jesus was being mean. (laughs) That's not what's going on here. This is an expression. And certainly, if the man's father was a spiritual man, he wouldn't say to his son, well, hang around with me until I die and then go follow the Lord. If he was a spiritual man, he would say, do what God has called you to do, son. So no matter how you look at it, it's the truth. And Jesus responded, let the dead bury the dead. What does that mean? In other words, let the spiritually dead be in the business of burying the physical dead. In other words, if you're not inclined toward the things of God, Go ahead, fulfill your your life doing things that have no spiritual value. Let the dead bury the dead. In summation, if we choose to take, number one, the narrow road of following Christ, an even narrower road of discipleship and leadership, don't be surprised if you hear things that offend you, if you find things out about yourself that you don't like. Sometimes, and it's happened to me, I've licked my wounds. I've had sorrow and disappointment, right? Now, Jesus wasn't saying, I don't want anybody to follow me. I only have an elite uh, group here. He was basically saying, I do want you to follow me. I do want there to be discipleship. But count the costs first and stop giving God lip service and follow him. So understand what's going on here. Verse 23. Now, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, let me give you a little background here, the Sea of Galilee. For those of you who are locals, like me, um, it, was it is 104 square miles. That is a big, it's really literally a lake, but it's called the Sea of Galilee. And let me tell you how big 104 square miles is. If you take South Brunswick, which is huge, and you put East Brunswick next to it, and you put Monroe and Jamesburg next to that, that's about what you have. Right? It was a big, big lake. Now, here's the thing. The, uh, it's considered a shallow lake, Roughly the deepest part is 200 feet, and that's really not very deep. To me it is. I'm not really a fan of the ocean, (laughs) of the major water. Uh, But, you know, it's enough to drown in. The other issue is that... (laughs) The other issue is that the water absorbs the sun's uh, energy, and the water holds that energy. So you have a heat issue on the lake. Around the sides of the lake are right off the shore or off the coast are high mountains where there's cool, dry air. So what you have is you have this heat rising from the lake and it's being displaced, the convection effect, by that cool, dry air coming down and you start to see a convection. Because it's shallow, it can start whipping up those waves and whipping up the winds. And some say that Lake Erie 
is very similar to the Sea of Galilee. So in a moment, it can all, all of a sudden turn to this incredible uh, storm. Okay, so maybe I watch the Weather Channel too much. <laughs> and right here, if you look at the New England states, you see the... Uh, <laughs> let's move on. But Mark's gospel adds that the boat was covered with waves. And what was Jesus doing? According to Mark, not only was he asleep, but he was asleep on a pillow. Boy, do I love that picture of my Lord. Complete serenity, complete uh, peace in the midst of chaos. Never a worry. And certainly a good lesson for us. I believe that if there was an earthquake, Jesus, he'd be shaken, but I think he'd still be on that pillow, just kind of readjusting it. But this is really cool. And, and, you know, we covered worry and anxiety. And I think in our fast-paced culture, that really speaks to us as Americans, as East Coasters. Uh, So if you didn't get the uh, message in Matthew 6, get it for free off the Internet. But what is it about your life that's so pressing that you can't sleep in the midst of chaos? What is it that's keeping you up at night? Certainly, giving it to the Lord is a good idea. Now, we say that we give things to the Lord, but oftentimes we still have a few fingers on it. You know what I'm saying? I still want to carry part of that pack. Give it to the Lord. Give it all to the Lord. Trust him. An exercise in faith and try to model what he does. So they say in verse 25, Lord, save us. We are perishing. Mark's gospel adds, I love this. Do you not care that we are perishing? Right? How many times have we said that? Lord, don't you see my predicament? Don't you see what's going on? Did you forget about me? How can you look at this, Lord, and do nothing? You know, I'm I'm that proverbial camel and I can't put one more piece of straw on the camel's back or I'm going to just fall to pieces. But just like the disciples and, you know, we can get caught up in looking at the disciples, reading the Bible and saying, oh, they had Jesus in their midst. Well, so do we. We're also sealed with the Holy Spirit. How can we say, do you not care, Lord? But sometimes we do it. And if we don't say it with our lips, we're saying it with our heart or our behaviors. I can tell you this, he will never abandon you. He'll be with you through the good times and the bad. Verse 26, why are you so fearful, Jesus said, oh, you of little faith. How many times did Jesus have to say that in his earthly ministries? If you read the Gospels, you see it was more than a few, too many times. You see, faith and fear are diametrically opposed to each other. There's this really faith and fear continuum. On the one side is complete fear. Complete fear has no faith in it. On the other side of the continuum is complete faith. Complete faith has no uh, fear in it. So all fear, no faith. All faith, no fear. And sometimes we fall somewhere in the middle of that continuum. But it's a good thing to look at and it's a good lesson to, to learn. So Jesus arose, maybe not entirely happy that the disciples waked him up from his nap. Uh, and he... And he rebukes the storm. Now check this out. He rebukes both the disciples for their lack of faith, and he also rebukes the storm to get it to calm down. Now some have asserted because of this, because he rebuked the storm, that it could have had satanic origins. Maybe it wasn't strictly weather, but some assert, and it's an interesting conjecture that Satan uh, figured, if, I, if I'm going to get God, I've got to get him now that he's in human form. And I'll do everything I can to destroy him. I don't know if I completely buy it, but it is interesting. But if you, if you think about it in your mind, you know, he's on this pillow and the boat is rocking. Probably rocked him to sleep. <laughs> and 
And the disciples are probably pulling on the ropes and messing with the masks and, you know, taking whatever they could get and getting the water out of it. It's just complete chaos. And then imagine Jesus getting up in the midst of the chaos, putting his hand out, rebuking, rebuking the storm, and everything now becomes calm. All that noise to all that quiet. Imagine the look on the disciples' face when he did that. Pretty impressive. So they say, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let me throw that back out at you. Who do you think he is? What have you been taught about Jesus Christ? If you are around, like when I lived in East Brunswick in a busy area, every Saturday the Jehovah Witnesses would knock on my door. Oh, we're Christians. But Jesus was not God. He was a man. He was a prophet. He did great things, but that's about as far as we'll go. Is that the truth? Or the Mormons? Well, Jesus was God. Oh, yeah, great. We're going to be in fellowship, right? No, Lucifer is his uh, spirit brother, and the plan was between Lucifer and, and Jesus, and Jesus got the contract by the Father, and Lucifer didn't. So here we are. Not true either. Who is this? None other but the Holy Son of God. Or Islam's picture of Jesus. What do they say about Jesus? Well, he was a great prophet, but Muhammad was a greater prophet than him, and we, we don't think that God the Father or God has a son, and we don't even believe that we're his children. So the question is, what do you think of Jesus? Can Jesus do all these things that we read about and not be truly the Son of God, equally in deity with the Father? Sometimes it's good to talk to a child about what they think about Jesus. In uh, Bible class, the teacher asked my son out of Matthew chapter 5 through 8, what's your favorite story or your favorite account? And he picked this one. He's a little bit of a worrier. So uh, just the fact that Jesus can calm the storms in his life gives him great uh, comfort. I remember one time he was on the bus. He tells me the account afterwards. And there was a new bus driver, and they missed our stop. And he started panicking. You know, He was the only kid left on the bus, and the bus driver is driving away from our house. So he just stopped, and he started praying, Lord, please help me to get home. And by the time he was praying, the bus driver figured it out, went around the block and stopped at our house and let him off. What a great exercise for a child, huh? Don't you forget that, kid. You know, Jesus is always there for you. All right? Verse 28. When he had come to the other side of the country, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from there, uh, then there was uh, a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, They went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. And those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. How odd. We'll get into that. So the Gergesenes and the Gadarenes are on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, They survived the storm, Christ and the disciples, only to face demons. In verse 28, and I'll just give you five pictures of what Satan and the world have for us. We're going to compare what the world has for us, what Satan has for us, and what Christ has for us. Compare and contrast. 
So the first thing we see is the men come out of the tombs. Now the tombs held dead bodies. And if you touched that dead body, it would make you unclean for a time. You were unfit at that time to worship God. You were defiled. So number one, Satan's plan for us is to be defiled, to keep us away from God. Now, start to think about maybe your life, if you don't know the Lord, or someone that you love, if you do know the Lord, and see where this is going. What is my lifestyle? What does their lifestyle look like? Number one, Satan wants us away, far away from God as possible. He's our lifeline. Two, they were fierce and wouldn't allow passage. Satan puts us at enmity with others. I remember before I was a believer, you know, I had a problem with everybody. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and that's what he does. He takes us away from God. And the second thing is he takes us away from those made in his image. He takes us away from our loved ones. Three, Luke's gospel adds that the man... Now remember, uh, Matthew focuses on two men. Luke and Mark focus on the worst of the two. He really stands out to those two gospel writers. Not an issue. Luke adds that uh, the man or the men were naked and spent time in the wilderness. Now, Satan wants us to live in shame and to be isolated. That's three and four. That's what he has for us. Now... Nakedness in the scripture was a picture of shame. Unfortunately, in America, nakedness is an industry. So we look at things a little bit differently than what we've seen or what they saw years ago. If you were exposed to the rest of society, it was shameful. But now that's kind of gone away in our society. There was a um, uh, MTV had this series that they were going to run called Skins. Oh, it's just a reality show about what teens do. And pretty much they were scantily clad, and there's been a lot of backlash. A lot of their supporters pulled out when pro-Christian groups have said, this is wrong. What redeeming societal value does this show have? I don't know where it's at right now, but the last time I checked, a lot of their supporters were starting to pull out. It's disgusting. A lot of these companies, they want to live on the cutting edge so they can get ratings. My expression is, if you live on the cutting edge too much, you eventually get cut. And they will be held accountable by the Lord. Mark adds that the men were cutting themselves and crying out in pain. The fifth point, Satan wants us to live self-destructive lifestyles. How many people have you met that you try to witness to that are in this cycle of dysfunctionality? Is self, everything they do is to, it eventually ends up hurting themselves. And you try to share the gospel with them. God has better things for you than that. So these are the five points that we look at. Famous rocker Tommy Lee scoffed at the suggestion that he was as a devil worshiper. I'll tell you this, though. He will fall into the same judgment as the devil if he continues to rebel against God. And he will open himself and be susceptible to demonic entities. Now, let me just do a little bit, uh, you know, give you a little background here. I think it's a good idea. If you look at 1 John 4.4, 4, 1 John 4.4, 4, if you look at 2 Corinthians 1.22, we see that believers, I believe, scripturally, that believers cannot be possessed by evil spirits. So if you're a new believer or you're an unbeliever and you, 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 you went to trust the Lord and you're concerned about this as you read the Gospels, don't worry about it. He who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. St. Corinthians tells us that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So light and dark can't mix. They can't stay together. If the more powerful force of God within you, the satanic entities cannot, they just can't, God's of course stronger. So understand that uh, a believer, if you had questions, cannot be possessed by demonic entities. 
Now, by contrast, we're going to see what Jesus does for these men, um, and we'll move on from there. Mark 5, let me just jump to Mark 5. He gives us a little bit more detail. I'm just going to read three verses. He says, uh, there was a man had an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him, which suggests he was behaving like a wild animal. Uh, and always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Does anybody want to be around somebody like that? Does anybody think that this might be a little bit too far-fetched? Be honest. I'm going to add something here. Um, I know we have some members here of the law enforcement community. I know we have some members here from corrections and some from the medical Community. When I start to explain this, you will exactly know what I'm talking about. Everyone else, we try to protect you from this kind of stuff. There are those who can break handcuffs. They can break chains. It's happened. There are some dangerous men out in this world, let me tell you. 20 years as a road cop, I've seen some wild things. Dangerous men. And let me tell you something. When a police officer goes to get fitted for his ballistic vest, right, the person, because I've had it done four times, the person, the fitter says, what do you carry on your sidearm? It's a 40 caliber. Okay. The vest has to be able to withstand your own bullet. You might say, why is that? Because there are too many police officers that are over, overpowered by men like this. Their backup isn't close enough and killed and shot with their own guns. Pretty morbid, isn't it? Some, and with all of our training and all of our tools, uh, some of these men and you know, now that we have video cameras, they will flick off police officers like gummy bears. It takes four or five cops to hold somebody like this down. They see some, sh some head shaking because you know, you've seen it, right? These men are out there. And I fear for society when they're let out. I've, um, I remember talking to a nurse once and said, it took a, a lot of effort to get this guy handcuffed and we would send him to the hospital. You might want to consider having a needle ready to calm him down when we take the handcuffs off. Right? There are some dangerous men out there. Now, some will say that, uh, well, I read the Bible, and you know what it was? The gospel writers didn't have psychiatry yet, psychology. These men were just mentally ill. There's no such thing as demon possession. Well, the Greek doesn't reflect that, and Jesus' conversations with the demons and casting them out, that's a good trick if you can get part of you to leave. It might not be a bad thing. But I would say this, I think it's the opposite. I believe that we're so, as a society, as we get so smart and technological savvy, I think we're so adverse as a society to the supernatural that I believe today we're just drugging men up who are demon-possessed. I think it's the reverse. Just give them a needle, drug the body, and with heavy narcotics and hypnotics to bring them down, you know, lock them up somewhere, put them on some type of drug, but they really may be demon-possessed. So I think it's the reverse. Let's go back to the scripture. How does somebody get possessed? Well, certainly they can invite Satan into their life, and some do. Um, we see in the scripture that the word for sorcery and witchcraft is, in the Greek, pharmakia, where we get the word pharmacy from. Understand the ancient cultures used to abuse drugs and alcohol, 
They used to abuse it. They used to take it so much and get themselves into a trance and uh, really open themselves up for demonic pre- uh, entities to come into their life, and they will. So understand that, the, again, the drug use was part of that way to bring the gods into your life. And, of course, we know they're demons. But Christ gives every believer the ability to cast out demons if we have enough faith. Understand that. And, and again, when I used to watch the, all the horror movies, you really get the impression that Satan is stronger than God. That's Hollywood. That's not reality. You know, if, if the exorcist could have been whittled down to the truth, it would have taken about five minutes. You know what I'm saying? Instead of a two-hour movie. You know, biblically. So what do we have here? Uh, verse 29 through 31. Let's go back to Matthew's gospel. Verse 29 through 31. There's this issue or this discussion that Jesus has, almost like uh, state your name, rank, and serial number. Jesus commands them. He gets their attention, and he speaks to them before he deals with them. Uh, They say, we are legion, for we are many. Now, the Roman legion could have had thousands of soldiers under them. Uh, They call themselves legion. Understand that it is a spiritual battle. The demons are you know, poised against the things of God. And we see in the end, of course, they'll be defeated when the Lord comes to reclaim what's rightfully his. Uh, They tell us, don't torture us before the time. And in another scripture, I believe Mark adds that don't throw us into the abyss. When we covered the book of Revelation, which is a very fun study, uh, we saw the abyss and we saw the demons that that were locked up in that bottomless pit. And the question is, how do all these demons fit in this man? We have to understand that no Bible teacher, no pastor can answer every single question that you may have about the scripture. I have no idea. All I know is that the spiritual realm is foreign to us. We live in tangibility. You know, we have molecules and, and uh, you know, bonds and, and different. We, we follow the laws of physics in our own body and, and the things that we touch tangibly. They can pass through structures. They can uh, pass through different time portals. It's just unbelievable. So how do you fit all those demons in one man? I don't know, but he was in really a bad place. They know their time is short, and they want to inflict as much damage as they can. Now, I find this fascinating. In Mark's gospel, when Jesus came close, it said they worshipped him and begged him not to torment them. They were smart enough. There's a lot of people today that aren't. But the demons were smart enough when they recognized who Jesus was. The skin and the hair didn't fool them. They knew that Jesus was God. And they, they're, they're trying to um, negotiate some type of, uh, you know, Giving up, you know, when you're in a war and you give up to the other side. I forget what you call that. You want to yell it out? That's it. You know, <laughs> terms of surrender, that's what it is. So I'm just kind of likening it to a, a battle because that's what it is. Verse 32, notice the pigs had enough sense to try to get the demons out of them. <laughs> right? And even if it meant to, to take their own lives, they, you know, they just didn't want these entities in them. Sadly, the pigs can be smarter than many humans in a lot of ways. There are those that want to, they desire to contact the dead. Leave the dead, the dead, right? There are those that want to contact spirits and this kind of necromancy uh, that they do. Uh, this crossing over, remember that popular show that you could speak with the dead and some said they found that he was a fraud. But here's the deal when you deal with somebody who can get you to contact someone who's dead, either they're a fraud or you're going to be contacting somebody that you don't want to be contacting. Trust me. 
because they'll play with you. They'll fool around. And if you invite them in, they'll come. And they'll be like uninvited guests, and they won't leave. You won't get rid of them, right? So this is what often happens. Um, they're like bed bugs. You know, once you get them, it's kind of really hard to get rid of them. And God certainly condemns contacting spirits or spiritism or necromancy uh, in his law. Later on in Matthew, we'll see, again, some of these scriptures kind of make the hair stand up on, your back, on the back of your neck. Uh, later on in Matthew, we'll see that what spirits like to do. You know, they'll go from one body to another. They'll go through dry places, seek, seeking where they can find rest. And if they don't find it, they'll come back to the person that they were cast out of. Uh, they actually don't like to be disembodied. According to what I uh, read, they like to have a covering over them. Again, I can't figure it out. It's just what I'm reading in the scripture here. Now, many scoffs, maybe even here today, some may say, oh, this is ridiculous, all this stuff about devils, you know, that's all superstition. I'll tell you what, if you really don't believe it and you're not a believer, they're, they're working in your life whether you want to believe it or not. They're fooling you. There's been books written by missionaries on the reality of demon possession on the missions field in some of these uh, primitive cultures. Now, some may say, well, then how come we don't see it as much here? And I just said to you that uh, you may be protected you know, society is protected from what the military and the police and the frontline people do. So you may not see it firsthand. Uh, somebody calls 911, you deal with someone and, and you put them through the system. But I would say that Satan uses his craft in different societies and he evaluates each, each situation. He's not a dummy. So he'll go to some of these primitive cultures and to scare them, he may manifest some of his top guys and frighten the villagers and make them sacrifice their daughters and this stuff still happens, right? It's human sacrifice, it's still alive and well in the world. Keeps them in fear, keeps them terrified to appease the gods and their demons. I think in America, well, what works better than that is to get us so caught up in the hustle and bustle of life, so caught up in the cares of this world. You know, when Jesus spoke about sowing the seeds, the word of God and how it would uh, take root in people's hearts. I think in America, the thorns and the thistles of the cares of this world, the money, the cars, the, you know, whatever we, we do, it chokes out the word and makes it unfruitful, Jesus says. I think that's, Satan's doing a good job there. He's probably going to continue doing it because it works here, right? Well, that's just my take on that. Now, to the animal lovers, <laughs> listen, I also struggled with this passage. I love animals too. And it was a, uh, a challenge to explain it to my son. But the bottom line is if there's a crisis, and God loves his creation, if he's going to save man or animal, he's going to save men and women first. Like he, that's how much he loves us. He places a higher priority on us. So let's kind of wrap it up here. In, um, I talked about what the world and Satan has to offer us. What does God have to offer us? Well, we read in Luke 8 that one of the men described was sitting at Jesus' feet. He was clothed, and he was in his right mind. So let's talk about what the Lord has to offer to us, especially those of you who today who came in here and you're not a believer. Number one, the man was clothed. His nakedness and his shame were covered up. That's what the Lord does for us. He takes away our shame. He takes away our... our uh, a base humility or humiliation and gives us dignity. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, it says that all the saints have these white robes. Everyone has the same robe, you know. Um, when God goes to hand them out, it's not different colors. You get the white robe. 
But the white robe, right? No choices anymore. I like that, you know? So you get the white robe, and the white robe is really representative of Christ's righteousness. So that's what we become clothed with now in a spiritual sense. So that's the first thing. The second thing, the man was sane. He brings sanity, reason, wisdom. The Bible says that now we have the mind of Christ. We're spiritual beings. We have the ability to have as much of the Holy Spirit as we desire. Some of us don't ask for as much as God was willing to provide. However, we can look at the spiritual realm and the physical realm and discern both of those realms now as believers. We think more clearly when we're in Christ. Three, the man was calm. We see about Jesus in these chaotic situations. He would walk in and he would leave and he would bring his peace. Comes, comes into chaos, leaves with stability. Four, restoration. The man was restored. If the father and son had a business, it would be called the father and son restoration business. Right? We put people's lives back together again. Who's interested? The Bible speaks about the years the locusts have eaten and giving us beauty for ashes. Some of you today have been through some awful things in your life. Some of you have been on the battlefield. Some of you have been victims of crimes. Some of you right now are struggling and agonizing over your kids making the wrong decisions. God is in the restoration business. Amen. For you and those that you love. Unfortunately, what's usually hindering that restoration is a matter of the will. That's usually the obstruction. Christ came to give us life and give us that life abundantly. He didn't come to say, okay, Christians, you're all going to live forever in heaven. But now, until then, you're going to be pretty miserable. He didn't come to do that. He wants us to have joy and to have that peace that surpasses all understanding. So we get a double blessing. We get to go to heaven And we get to have that abundant life on this world, in this life. Fifth thing, most important, the man was sitting at Jesus' feet. And that's where every believer belongs. Sometimes we get a new lease on life only to ignore the things of God and live a bare, subsistence spiritual life. That's our choice. But we can choose to sit at the Lord's feet. Let me just read the last two verses again. It says, then those who kept them, meaning the pigs, fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Let me read, let me go to Mark. He adds a little bit more. Mark 5, 18 through 20. And when he, Jesus, got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he, the man departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis, which was the 10 city region, and all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. So number one, you have restored men. And Jesus wants us when we're restored to tell us all the great things that the Lord has done for us. And I'm the first one to say that. I'm not going to stand up here and say, hey, I'm perfect. Look, I'm your pastor. I'm here to tell you that for 27, 28 years, I lived my own life. And I was going straight to hell. 
And, and I, the reason why I tell that is not for you to think any less of me, but to tell you all the great things that the Lord has done for me. And I am completely happy with him saying, Joe, until the day you die, tell them all what, what I've done for you. No problem, master. Whatever you say, I'm, gonna, I'm doing it. I got my marching orders. Right? Acquiesce to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Number two, those that see the power of Christ and still reject it, Jesus is a mirror to the sinful soul. Even as a believer, when we hold up this Bible, this is a mirror. Well, I just see words on a page. But in a spiritual sense, I see who I am. When I read about pride, when I read about um, uh, unforgiveness, when I read about bitterness, when I read about um, you know, bragging, whatever the case may be, I look at this Bible, I read that, and I say, wow, Joe DeProsmo doesn't look so good. You know, he's got some smudges. He could fix his hair a little bit in a spiritual sense. I don't look good. But these men, the others that saw what Jesus did, saw the demons come out, saw the mass of pigs go up. Imagine what a sight that must have been, a, a pig stampede, 2,000 pigs running off the cliff. How do you not just go up to the Lord and kneel down and say, whatever you say, Lord, oh, tell me more about you. I want to learn. But no, they told him, leave. And you'll find this out. Come on, how many of you have talked to others that you know are struggling you know, they're not believers. They don't know the Lord. And they're just, it's just a constant uh, state of, of sin and dysfunction. And, well, I'm going to try this. And, you know, for years, they keep trying to make their lives better. And they keep falling flat again. And, you, you know, you so much want to help them. But they want Jesus to depart. They don't care. They're going to do it their way. So I would say this. Whether it's calming the storms in your life, as we read in the first section, or... Casting out of your life what's evil, what's destroying you, that cycle of dysfunction and sin. Jesus has the power and the willingness to do both. I think we've read enough so far that you constantly see Jesus with his hand out to touch. A lot of times we're with our hand out to get. Jesus always put his hand out to help others and to change their lifestyles for the better. But the will is what gets in the way all the time. The only question left is, will you take his hand? Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we just love your word, Lord. What a, a picture of the storms and the tumultuous life that we can live on this side of eternity.